everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. As always, I've got my brother and producer, Joel, here with me as well. And today we are diving into the absolutely shockingly vile, disturbing, one of the most evil individuals to have walked this planet, none other than Albert Fish, who had many nicknames, including the Gray Man, and the one I like most to call him is the real life boogeyman, because he really was. Now, before we get into today's episode, I just want to warn you that this one will be very disturbing, perhaps one of the most disturbing episodes we've had so far. It's going to be graphic, and some of the things that he did are honestly just so disturbing and hard to wrap your head around. So, now you can't say I didn't warn you. But before we get into today's episode, I wanted to quickly remind you about my CBD brand, Higher Love Wellness. If you're somebody out there who struggles with anxiety, maybe you have some sort of pain, or you're just looking for a way to chill out the body without getting high. Well, I sure have the products for you. Higher Love Wellness offers some of the best premium CBD hemp extracted products out there on the market. Seriously, good stuff. I mean, I vape CBD all day, every day, because for whatever reason, marijuana gives me a lot of anxiety and paranoia. And during the day, it's hard to work, you know, when you're You've got that head high going for sure so with cbd it's just going to give you an overall sense of calm it's not going to get you high there's no thc in the products and it's 100 percent legal in all 50 states and all this cbd is produced and extracted from hemp grown right here in our home state of colorado so this is literally like farm to table cbd products that's kind of the way i like to explain it to people is it's literally small batches, super high quality. And I guarantee you it's going to be some of the best tasting products you've ever tried before, or maybe you've never tried CBD before. Then higher love wellness is a great place to start. We've got gummies, mm-hmm. which are absolutely delicious and Fire. blue raspberry grape and watermelon flavors. We also have, like I said, the vape cartridges in yep. our blueberry OG delicious, absolutely delicious to vape. Oh yeah. Super smooth, tastes delicious. And provides that immediate relief. Uh huh. We also have CBD wax, which if you've never dabbed CBD wax, you're missing out. It's seriously good stuff. Probably the most effective way to consume CBD. And then of course we have CBD oils as well, which you can just put under your tongue or you can put them in drinks, smoothies, all that kind of good yeah. stuff. So I like to mix them up in my Gatorade every now and then. That's a great way to great way to consume yeah. CBD. And again, CBD is just, you know, it's going to help calm your body. It's like a dimmer switch for the body. So you're just going to feel chill without the high. You're not going to worry about not passing drug tests because there's no THC in there. So if you want to check out Higher Love Wellness, I'd really love it if you would. It's higherlovewellness.com. And yeah, thanks for checking it out. Also, this episode is brought to you by HelloFresh, AMC Shutter, and Bartleby Learn. Now, let's go ahead and get into the disturbing story of Albert Fish. Albert Fish was born Hamilton Howard Fish on May 19, 1870 in Washington, D.C. He was the youngest child of Randall and Ellen Fish, but he also had three other living siblings, two brothers and a sister. However, one brother who actually passed away was named Albert. He came from a prestigious, well-known New York family. He was named after a relative who was a governor of New York and also served as secretary of state. And the unfortunate thing about Albert Fish's family is that 
for multiple generations, the family had at least seven different relatives who had suffered from severe mental illness. He had an uncle actually who suffered from religious psychosis and mania. The other two of his uncles actually died in psychiatric hospitals. One of his brothers was even put into a psychiatric hospital while the other was an alcoholic. Also, his sister was diagnosed with a mental affliction and his mother had auditory and visual hallucinations. Albert was a bedwetter until his late teens. He was also very sensitive as a little kid. So much so that as a toddler, his father gave him the nickname Stick in the Mud. That's a a very mean thing to call your child, for one. Definitely. But I'm sure that definitely had a severe impact on him from a very early age. His father was also a riverboat captain and fertilizer manufacturer, and he was actually 43 years older than Albert's mother. So when Albert was actually born, his father was 75 years old. So you can imagine a little bit at least what kind of family dynamic this must have been. And at an early age, if your father's 75 years old, it's obviously going to be very difficult to have develop any sort of bond with your father at that age. I mean, he's close to the end there and it's going to be difficult for him to, you know, bond with a child Mm -hmm. who's, you know, his son. Right. And, you know, not only that, to have this nickname for your son. I mean, that, that must have just been a really tough situation. When Albert was just five years old, his father actually died from a sudden heart attack in 1875. And the only thing that Albert remembered about his father was what his face looked like and also this horrible nickname he had given him. After his father passed, his mom couldn't find work and wasn't able to take care of Albert. So she left him at St. John's Orphanage. And St. John's Orphanage was a truly awful place. The physical and sexual abuse there was unimaginable. Albert was severely beaten by the older boys and by the caretakers. The workers at the orphanage would actually force the boys to strip down naked, and then they'd line them up to be whipped in front of everyone else just to humiliate them and punish them. And this was the first time when Albert started associating sexual feelings with pain and torture, especially the sound of the other boys screaming as they were whipped. Albert would actually get erections when he was whipped, and the older boys would then taunt and beat him for that. Crazy enough, during these whipping sessions, another worker would read passages from the Bible. And they were usually about sins of the flesh and sexual immorality and discuss things like adultery, sensuality, impurity, passion, desire, and even orgies. And for Albert, the idea of sexual pleasure, pain, and religion got all mixed up in his head. And he wasn't able to separate them at all. That doesn't mean he wasn't severely traumatized by what happened at the orphanage. What he experienced and witnessed at such a young age was absolutely horrifying. And how he coped with it and processed his trauma had a hugely profound effect on the rest of his life. Because later on in life, he actually said that that place ruined my mind. It would ruin anybody's mind. Let's be honest. I mean, 
when you hear stories of these type of heinous activities happening at a place like an orphanage, it's truly terrifying. And it's sad. It's absolutely sad because all these young people that are literally being sexually abused at young ages, it means it has a huge effect on them for the rest of their life. Clearly, that's what happened with Albert. So in a lot of ways, it's not all that surprising that this was all so confusing for him because of the circumstances that his mother left him in. I mean, that's a truly horrible way, probably one of the worst ways to grow up because you're just so impressionable at that age. After four years, his mom had a steady job working for the government and ended up coming to get him from the orphanage. So he was there for a few years, it seems like, because he was almost nine years old when he left. And while he was there, he was given a new nickname, Ham and Eggs. And he absolutely hated this name. But when he was a teenager, he started going by Albert, the name of his deceased brother, in order to try to separate himself from the nickname. When he was 11 years old, Albert had a very bad accident when he fell from a cherry tree and suffered a pretty serious concussion because after this fall, he had terrible headaches and dizzy spells. And he also developed a stutter, which only alienated him from his peers even more. So on top of all that abuse he just went through, he then falls from a tree and suffers clearly a brain injury. So at a very young age, his brain is just scrambled. I mean, there's, it cannot be developing correctly. When he was about 12 years old, he met a telegraph boy who introduced him to disturbing and disgusting things like drinking urine and eating feces. And these habits were added to Albert's growing list of fetishes. He started spending most of his weekends at bathhouses where he could watch men and young boys undress. And at 17 years old, he started working as a painter. And in 1890, when he was about 20 years old, he moved to New York City. Once there, he started supplementing his income with sex work, which allowed him to engage in consensual sex with men. His mother wanted him to settle down, you know, have a family, a wife. So that's exactly what she helped him do. She basically found him a wife. And at the time, arranged marriages were pretty common. So in 1898, Albert Fish married Anna Mary Hoffman. And together they had six kids, four sons and two daughters. And he supported his growing family by taking painting jobs all over the country. Wherever there was work, that's where Albert went. In 1903, he had his first run-in with the law when he was arrested and convicted for embezzlement and grand larceny. And while in prison, he had sexual relationships with multiple men. Mind you, he's married and has a bunch of kids. He was released after a few years and continued to have sex with men. One young man he was seeing took him to a wax museum where he learned about penis bisection, which involves cutting the penis in half lengthwise. And this sparked his obsession with genital mutilation and castration. Holy shit. That is a very disturbing thought to think about, especially as a man. After this, he started going to brothels regularly, where he requested to be whipped and beaten by the sex workers. He also expected his wife, Anna, to participate in his fetishes. But by 1917, she had had enough. And she was also having an affair with a handyman named John Straub, who had lived with them as a boarder. And she decided to leave Albert for him. 
While he was at work, she took all the furniture and most of the possessions from the house and just took off. Albert came home to discover his wife had left him for another man, cleared out the house, and left all six kids behind. Albert felt very betrayed by her, and he had a hard time coping with his new role as a sole breadwinner and caretaker for his children. So he decided to move them all to Westchester to start a new life without Anna. Also at this time, he started having auditory hallucinations, just like his mother. And he believed God and the apostles were speaking to him, which this marked the beginning of his religious psychosis. One day, his daughter got up in the middle of the night for some water. When she came into the living room, she saw her father all rolled up inside the carpet, and all she could see was the top half of his head. She must have been used to seeing strange things like this because she got her water and then went back to bed. And when she woke up the next morning, Albert just climbed out of the carpet. And apparently he had just stayed in there like that all night. And when she asked him why he had done that, he said, John the Apostle told him to do it. A few years later, in 1922, his boys were outside playing football in the yard. And one of them went to pass the ball and caught a glimpse of his father on the hill. He was completely naked and yelling, I am Christ, over and over again. And just like their sister, his sons didn't say anything and just kept playing. Other than this kind of bizarre behavior, there's no evidence that he ever physically abused his kids. They were actually a close family, and he was especially close with his daughters. And since they never lived with him as adults, they never knew as much about his disturbing habits as their brothers. But there's still a lot of questionable things that happened in their house. You didn't think Albert was weird enough already. Albert was also fascinated by cannibalism. He carried around articles about it and started eating raw animal meat. He even prepared meals using raw meat for the family. He also experimented with self-harm. He would insert needles into his stomach and groin. And he would soak pieces of cotton fabric or wooden dowels in alcohol and then push them into his rectum and light them on fire. He would also strip naked and beat himself with wooden paddles and even added nails to make it more painful. The nails would rip his skin open, but he just kept on paddling until blood was streaming down his legs. One time his kids saw him doing this to himself, and there are some reports that he asked his kids and their friends to take this nail paddle and hit him with it. In 1928, Albert was living with two of his sons in Manhattan, and they'd come home one day and found him in his room sticking needles into his body. He was pushing them into his abdomen, his rectum, and his genitals. And apparently, he did this all the time. And sometimes, he wasn't even able to get them out again. His sons would ask him what he was doing, and he would just say he got a message from Jesus Christ telling him that this is what he needed him to do. Soon after, they sent him to live with his son, Albert. And it didn't take long for things to get weird there, too. Albert Jr. was fixing a clogged pipe when he found his father's homemade paddles hidden under the sink. These were two feet long, with one and a half inch nails sticking out. And when he looked closer at the paddles, they were covered in dried blood and pieces of flesh. So when Albert Sr. got home, he asked him about the paddles. But Albert just tried to change the subject. But finally, he admitted that he was still using them on himself. He said he got these feelings that came over him. 
And when that happened, he had to hurt himself with the paddles. Another day, Albert Jr. heard strange noises coming from his father's room. And when he walked in, he found him holding his penis and one of the paddles. And he had this horrible, crazed look on his face and was panting. And to his horror, Albert whacked his penis as hard as he could with the paddle. And he jumped into the air and screamed in pain. His sons never told anyone else about these strange, violent habits. Even though his adult daughters didn't witness his behavior, they knew it was going on. In 1931, he was having dinner with his daughter Gertrude and her kids at their house in Brooklyn. And during the dinner, he started squirming uncomfortably in his seat. And Gertrude knew he had ruptured a vein by puncturing it with a needle. She asked if the rupture was hurting, and he said no. He went on to say that he had recently put in three more needles that were bothering him. And they said all this in front of the kids like it was just normal dinner conversation. Gertrude asked why he put in more needles, and he said God told him that that's what he needed to do when he got these certain feelings. He mentioned these feelings to his kids multiple times, but none of them ever asked him what they were or why God would tell him to hurt himself because of them. Around 1929, he started a new hobby of writing letters to random women he found through classified ads in the newspaper. At the time, it was common practice for men and women to place matrimonial advertisements in the paper to find a spouse. And women who took out these ads were common targets for Albert. His letter writing habit might have actually started with this landlady. Him and his sons were renting a board house in New York City from a woman named Mrs. Carlson. And like most people, Mrs. Carlson thought Albert was just a harmless old man. He was pale and weak and walked with a slight hunch. And he had a habit of clenching and unclenching his hands while he walked, making it seem like he was always nervous. So she pretty much felt bad for him. Albert had asked her several times if he could take her young sons to the movies. And she brushed him off without actually saying no. And they never ended up going. But then he started sending her letters. The first two weren't offensive, but the third letter was so horrible and disgusting that she immediately kicked him and his sons out. And when she went to inspect the house after they left, she found what Albert had left behind. In the middle of the bedroom floor was just a heaping pile of human feces. Albert absolutely loved doing this. He often left feces on the floor or bed before he left a place he was staying or working in because he got sexual satisfaction knowing that someone in the house would be shocked to find it and then have to clean it up. In another letter writing campaign, he met a widow named Estella Wilcox. And after writing back and forth, she invited him over to meet her children. He seems like a pretty normal guy and they had a nice time. So she invited him back. But then things started to get weird. He spent most of the time with the kids and taught them how to play a few new games. He called the first game, Buck, Buck, How Many Hands Up? And before playing, he went into the bathroom to change into a pair of thin brown shorts, which was the only thing that he was wearing when he came out. And then he would get on his hands and knees and told the kids to sit on his bare back, one at a time. And they'd held up a number of fingers, and he had to guess how many were up. And if he was wrong, they spanked him with a paintbrush. One spank for each finger up. 
So if the kids had all five fingers up and he guessed wrong, he would get spanked five times. And Albert, he just guessed wrong every time. Sometimes even guessed more fingers than they had to make sure he was wrong. Because all he wanted was more spanks. The second game he'd play was called Sack of Potatoes Over. He'd wear the same pair of shorts and nothing else, and he'd pick the kids up and throw them over his shoulder. And as they slid down his back, they scratched his skin with their fingernails. So by the time that they were all done playing, his back was all red and covered in scratches. And after a few rounds, he wanted the kids to put needles under their fingernails to scratch him. But obviously they are like, that fucking hurts. So instead, he pushed the needles under his own nails until both of his hands were covered in blood. Albert most likely played these kinds of games with his own kids, but they just have never talked about it. Each night after Albert left, Estella found a rolled up piece of toilet paper on the bathroom floor that had been burned, and she knew it had been Albert who left it there, but she didn't know why. And this may have been an impromptu version of his habit of putting pieces of fabric or wooden dowels into his rectum and lighting them on fire. But despite all this really bizarre stuff, Albert somehow was able to convince Estella to marry him and marry him while he was still divorced to Anna because he had never actually gotten divorced from her. As soon as they got married, he wanted Estella to participate in his fetishes and sexual games, but she wasn't having it. They were only married for 10 days when she left him, but he had made quite an impression on the kids. They actually really liked him, and a few even kept in touch with him for many years. And like all of his other behaviors, the letter writing escalated pretty quickly. He started writing obscene letters to women, getting off on the thought of them reading the letter and being shocked and upset by what he said. He often introduced himself as Robert Fisk, a successful Hollywood producer looking for a wife. He said he'd love his new wife unconditionally and give her everything she needed. And all he wanted in return was for her to take care of him and his son, Bobby. Bobby doesn't exist. This is a fictional son of his who was paralyzed as an infant and now bedridden. And despite this disability, he still needed discipline. According to his doctor, he needed to be spanked with cat or nine tails every day. And this torture device is basically nine whips in one and is designed to cause severe pain by splitting open the skin. He also described in detail how to take Bobby to the bathroom, calling his penis his monkey. Most of the time, Albert never got responses to his letters. But he was just aroused by the fact knowing that women who would read these and be very upset and disturbed by what he had written. But if he did get a response, he made them a direct offer of $35,000 to meet him and do whatever fucking weird thing he wanted to do. And this was all going on during the Great Depression. So there was a lot of desperate people willing to do almost anything for money. There was one woman who wrote to him multiple times and with each letter, he sent back his disgusting fantasies and escalated them every single time. He would talk about drinking her urine from a cup while she watched. And he said he wanted to eat the feces straight from her body as it came out, calling it peanut butter Ugh. and other just sick, sick stuff. What the fuck? You know what that reminds me of? That human centipede movie. I've never seen it, but I've heard people You've say, never seen that? Don't I, ever watch I that. Hear I, it's fucking that I watched disgusting. that shit and 
<laughs> Thanks for just for bringing that back oh into my, my head. God. Fuck, man. Fuck. Yeah, that movie's fucked. Yeah. Just the whole concept of eating feces. I just, mm. I don't get it. It's, it's fucking disgusting. Yeah. It's just like, why, why are we doing shit like that? Right. This was probably even weirder back then. I mean, mm-hmm. there's people that are into this shit now, but back then I'm sure this was just fucking bizarre. Oh yeah. That this guy was doing this, but he was offering big money. So some women agreed to meet him and he agreed to pay. When this particular woman came to meet him, he wanted her to take off his clothes and spank him. And when she did, she saw that his whole body was completely shaven and he had painted his butt cheeks red. And this was something he had done before. And he'd either use red or gold paint. At one point, he ended up getting arrested for writing an obscene letter to another woman. He included his return address on an envelope before she agreed to meet him. She actually called the cops. And after his arrest, he was examined by a court social worker who said his behavior was questionable. You think? Questionable at best. (laughs) So they actually committed him to the Bellevue Psychiatric Hospital. And while there, he told the psychiatrist that he started writing these letters when he was working as a painter at a sanitarium. And someone found a bunch of dirty letters in a garbage can and read them out loud to a group of men. They all had a good laugh, but Albert decided he wanted to try writing one. At first, he just thought it would be fun. But once he started, it became a compulsion. He just knew he had to do it. Also, during the interview, he said he was a devoted Episcopalian. And the doctor asked if writing obscene letters went against his faith. And Albert said, there is no comparison. And after that, he refused to say anything else. But the psychiatrist decided that Albert wasn't insane, which is insane in itself. And he was actually released. He definitely didn't learn his lesson, though, because he was arrested again less than a year later when he was caught sending more obscene letters. And this time the police searched his apartment and they found his cat of nine tails. And when the police asked why he had it, he said he used it to whip himself and that it was none of their business. And when they moved the clothes in his drawer, they found a decaying hot dog and an old carrot. And you could probably guess what those were used for. One of the officers actually picked up the hot dog and asked Albert why these were in his drawer. And his response was, I stick them up my ass. <laughs> oh my God. So I, I wish I could have seen the, the officer's face when. when right. This or what he did after that. I'm sure. Yeah. That was a, a very traumatic. I'm sure eyes him. wide for the cop. Like what? So once again, they bring him to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist says that Albert is quiet, cooperative and oriented. And he was released 10 days later. The beginning of the end for Albert Fish happened with the disappearance of Grace Budd. The Budd family lived in a tenement in Manhattan's meatpacking district. They were poor and struggled to feed their five kids. And in May of 1928, 18-year-old Edward Budd ran a classified ad in the paper in order to try and find some work in order to make some extra money for the family. And lo and behold, a man by the name of Frank Howard responded to his ad. Frank was a 58-year-old farmer, or at least that's what he said, who needed someone to come out and help him at his farm on Long Island. So Frank sent him a telegram and then went to visit the Bud family's home. Once there, he offered a generous salary and a place for the young man to stay. 
and the family was extremely thankful. Delia, Edward's mother, viewed Frank as a godsend. Frank ended up visiting the Bud family again on June 3rd, 1928, and this time he brought presents. He brought the family fresh strawberries and pot cheese. And so, they invited him to stay for lunch. And there, that's when he met the Bud's 10-year-old daughter, Grace. Grace was usually very shy and didn't have any friends. But quickly, she took to liking Frank quite a bit. When Frank visited, she often sat on his lap, kissed him, and told him stories while he patiently listened. He told Dahlia he was going to his niece's birthday party at his sister's house, and Grace should come along with him. He thought she would get along very well with his niece, who was about the same age. And all that the Bud family knew was that Frank was a respectable man. He wore nice clothes and was polite and generous. And at the time, this was all it took to trust him. Even though they didn't really know if Frank was actually Frank Howard at all. Delia was hesitant, but after her husband said it was okay, she agreed. And Grace was excited. She wore her best dress, a white silk communion gown, and waved to her mother as Frank led her down the street, hand in hand. Frank gave her parents his sister's address and said they'd be back in a few hours. And then he would pick up Edward in order to take him to his farm to start his new job. But they didn't come back that night. Daly thought that there must have been an accident. And she never dreamed Frank would do anything to her Grace. The next morning, Grace's father went to the address Frank gave them. But this address didn't exist. So from there, he went straight to the police station to report them missing. There was no report of an accident and no record of anyone named Frank Howard in the area. And at that point, it finally dawned on him what had happened. Grace had been kidnapped. Soon the story made national headlines. The family printed thousands of flyers that were distributed throughout the U.S. and Canada. The lead detective, William King, became obsessed with finding Grace's abductor. He even postponed his retirement to stay on the case. He had the man's fingerprints but had a hard time getting the telegram he sent to Edward Budd about the job because the kidnapper had taken it back. This was crucial evidence because it would provide a sample of the kidnapper's handwriting, and William and his team had to spend hours and hours going through copies of telegrams in order to find it. There were a few suspects, but nothing was panning out, and eventually the case went cold. Two years later, 66-year-old Charles Pope was arrested after being turned in by his estranged wife. She claimed he was the one who kidnapped Grace, and Delia even confirmed he was Frank Howard. Everyone believed he did it except for William King. His fingerprints and handwriting didn't match, and he thought he was too old to be the man who took Grace. Charles was found not guilty at his trial, and after his wife admitted she was setting him up. Delia Budd also testified that she had misidentified him as the man who took her daughter. And after this, William didn't get a new lead in the case for another four years. In June 1934, Grace's disappearance was back in the media. Someone saw a 16-year-old girl they believed was Grace and contacted the police. It wasn't her, but the story apparently caught the attention of the kidnapper. Soon after, he sent a letter to Delia claiming to be Frank Howard. She didn't read or write, so she asked her son to read her the letter. And what was contained in this letter was a shocking and graphic description of Grace's murder. 
The letter started with a story about famine in China in the 1800s. Everyone was so desperate to survive that they started selling children under 12 for meat to keep others from starving. A friend of his was there and tried the human meat. It was so delicious that when he got back to New York, he kidnapped two children and tortured them to make their meat good and tender. He then killed them, cooked their body parts, and ate them. And this friend talked so often about how delicious it was, so he just had to try it for himself. When he met Grace, he decided he was going to eat her. They never went to a party. In fact, he took her to an empty house and made her wait outside while he took off his clothes so they wouldn't get blood on him. And when she came inside, she saw him naked and the knives he laid out on the bed and screamed and tried to run away. But he ran after her and caught her. She kicked, scratched, and bit him in order to try and get away. But then he proceeded to strangle her to death. Once she was dead, he dismembered her body and cooked it, just as his friend had described. And in the letter he said he wasn't disappointed. It was just as good as he imagined. And the most disturbing line in this letter read, How sweet and tender her little ass was roasted in the oven. At the end of the letter, he said it took him nine days to eat all of her body parts. And he ended the letter by assuring her mother that he didn't rape her, even though he could have, and that she died a virgin. So you can probably imagine how horrifying and traumatic Grace's family members were when they read that letter. I mean, that is, that is as cold and evil of a thing that someone could do. Oh, definitely. To a, to a family member like that. I mean, that is just, it's beyond words, honestly. Yeah. Clearly, whoever this person is gets off by, you know, writing these shockingly horrible things about his victims. After six years, Grace's family thought and assumed that Grace was dead. But to hear this was far more horrifying and gruesome than anyone could imagine. William King was still on the case and he got to work right away. He matched the handwriting to the telegraph sent six years earlier. And that's when he realized this was their guy. He tracked the logo on the envelope to a Manhattan Chauffeurs Association and interviewed anyone with any connection. A janitor said he took some envelopes home and left a stack at a boarding house. One person had rented the room after him, a 65-year-old man named Albert Fish. The landlady said he had already checked out, but he'd be back to pick up a check that she was holding for him. So William staked it out and waited for Albert to come back for his check. They had a 24-hour surveillance set up on the house for days but he never showed up and eventually the detective left. But soon after the landlady called the police and said, Albert was there. And so they told her, you know, stall him. And William rushed on over. Once there, he confronted Albert who was probably very, very shocked and got him to agree to go to the police station for questioning. But on the way out the door, Albert pulled a razor blade from his pocket and held it out like he was going to lunge forward and attack. 
William grabbed the frail old man, twisted the blade out of his hand. Albert then fell back on the couch, and that's when William looked down at him and said, I've got you now. Before we find out the fate of Albert Fish, I want to quickly thank our sponsors for today, and we'll be right back after this quick break. Albert Fish was arrested on December 13, 1934, and when he was searched, detectives discovered that he was carrying multiple razor blades, almost a disturbing amount. At the time, he was charged with the kidnapping and murder of Grace Budd, and he didn't try to deny any of it. When he went to the Bud's house the first time, he planned to kidnap and murder their 18-year-old son, Edward. But Grace liked him so much that he decided to take her instead. Plus, Edward was a strong young man, so Albert was not sure if he could overpower him. He said that him and Grace took a train to the empty house where he planned to kill her. And when he got up to get off the train, Grace saw he left something on the seat and fetched it for him. And this was his murder kit. Once inside the house, he strangled Grace to death and dismembered her body with a cleaver and saw. He allegedly told the police a lot more details about the brutal attack, but many of these details were too gruesome to release to the public. He then said he buried her body parts around the deserted mansion in Westchester. When the police searched the area, they actually found Grace's skull and bones. After his arrest, detectives noticed Albert couldn't sit properly. He said it was because of all the needles he inserted in his abdomen, groin, and rectum. They didn't believe him. But an x-ray showed that he had 29 needles embedded in his body, even floating in his bladder. It was at this point that they realized they were dealing with a seriously disturbed individual. Dr. Frederick Wortham was a psychiatrist who interviewed Albert to determine if he was legally insane and if he could actually stand trial. And he actually talked to him several times. And these interviews quickly took a very dark turn. The police couldn't verify everything that Albert said, because Albert enjoyed shocking and upsetting people. And so there's a possibility he made some things up. But even if just a fraction of what he described is true, he'd still be one of the most violent and depraved pedophiles and serial child killers and cannibals of all time. As soon as he moved to New York in 1890, he started looking for victims to molest and rape. He bragged that he had children in every state, and he preferred boys over girls, and most of his victims were under six years old. He explained that he chose victims from marginalized communities, especially people of color, because he assumed it would be easier to get away with his crimes. He also preyed on people with intellectual disabilities, disabled people, homeless kids, and orphans. He was looking for anyone who he thought wouldn't be missed. His work also gave him plenty of opportunities to find victims. He purposely looked for jobs in places where there would be unsupervised or vulnerable kids, such as orphanages, hospitals, or local YMCAs. He wore overalls like most painters, but he never wore clothes underneath. He was always ready to get undressed quickly in case he found a victim. When he started a new job, he would set up in a basement or other isolated area to lure and molest his victims. If he ever felt like they were close to getting caught, he just packed up and left town. And he had decades of practice to perfect his system. Sometimes he groomed kids for weeks or even months before attacking them. He'd give them gifts and compliments, making them feel special. Sometimes he forced his victims to beat him 
with his homemade paddle or cat o' nine tails. Other times, he did it to them. And the psychiatrist asked him why he did all this. And Albert explained that God had spoken to him and told him he had to torture, mutilate, and eventually kill children. Because there are examples in the Bible of God commanding his followers to do terrible things to test them. So the commands made sense to Albert. Episcopalians do interpret the Bible differently than other Christian denominations. So this might have opened the door for him to basically interpret scripture however he wanted to. And he took the stories in the Bible out of context and twisted them to fit his own sick narrative. He also said that he was a man of passion and that passion controlled him. He told a story from his time at the orphanage in order to explain what he meant by that. He said at the orphanage, a few older boys caught a horse in a field and tied it to a fence. And then they put kerosene on the tail and lit it ablaze. They then cut the horse free and the horse ran from the fire, but couldn't get away from it. Albert said he was the horse and the fire was his passion. Once he was caught by the fire, he couldn't escape and it had a complete control over him. No matter where he went or what he did, it followed him. And after two decades of molesting and raping children, Albert decided he wanted to kill and eat someone. But it would take many years and multiple attempts before he succeeded. His first attempted murder was in 1910 when he was working as a painter in Delaware when he met a 19-year-old man named Thomas Kedden. And Thomas had been riding the rails and making money through sex work. He looked very young for his age and was very childlike. Albert said he had the intellect of a young boy, so he was very easy to manipulate and control. And then they started a sadomasochistic relationship that soon escalated and turned violent. On one occasion, Albert cut open Thomas's buttocks and sucked out the blood. Another time, he used thorny branches to hit his backside until the flesh was scraped away. He also forced Thomas to consume urine and feces and he would stick a pack of needles into his genitals and buttocks and leave them there all night. He would then pour alcohol on his skin and his genitals and light it on fire. And after 10 days, Albert took Thomas to an old farmhouse. He had decided he was going to kill him and had a very specific plan to follow. He planned to mutilate his genitals, cut up his body, take the parts home, cook them up, and eat them. While he was restrained, Albert got Thomas aroused, and then he used a pair of scissors or a butcher's knife to start cutting off the head of his penis. Thomas screamed out in pain and begged Albert to stop. Albert only got about halfway through when he stopped and saw the look on Thomas's face, or maybe it's possible he realized he might get caught. And he rationalized that it was so hot out that day that the meat would spoil before he could get it home and eat it. So instead of killing Thomas, he poured peroxide on the wound and wrapped it with a handkerchief covered in Vaseline. He then untied Thomas, kissed him goodbye, and dropped a $10 bill on the floor. He then left and went back home to New York, and he never tried to find Thomas again, and doesn't even know what happened to him. In 1919, he tried again. He stabbed an intellectually disabled boy and fled, and no one knows that the boy died from his wounds. His next intended victim was a five-year-old, Patrice Keel, 
On July 11, 1924, he saw her playing on her farm in Staten Island. And while he was leading her away, her mother caught him and he fled. He went back that night and tried to sleep in the barn, hoping to get another chance to kidnap Beatrice. But her father found him and chased him off. Just a few days later, on July 15, 1924, he saw nine-year-old Francis McDonald playing on his porch. His mom was outside with him and saw the frail old man watching them. He looked nervous, and he was mumbling to himself and clenching and unclenching his fists. Francis wasn't his typical victim. He wasn't an orphan or a kid from a marginalized community. And he was the son of a police officer. And if he disappeared, the police would definitely take notice. Later that day, Francis was playing catch with a few friends. And this time, Albert got him to come over to him. And they took a walk. And when his friends tried to see where they went, Francis and the man were gone. That afternoon, a neighbor saw Francis walking toward the woods with an old man. Albert knew he had plenty of time to kill the boy, and he believed that if this was wrong, God would send an angel at the last second to stop him, just like he did for Abraham when he commanded him to kill his son Isaac. But of course, no angel ever came. He then proceeded to rape Francis, beat him, and cut his skin. He strangled him to death with his own suspenders. And Albert was getting ready to castrate the boy and was planning to dismember the corpse. But that's when he heard someone coming and fled. When Francis didn't come home, his father called the police immediately and they searched the whole area and questioned everyone. His friends told the police about the gray man, which was the old gray-haired man who they had seen take Francis for a walk. The search was widened to include all of Staten Island, and his body was found in the woods by three Boy Scouts hanging from a tree. He was naked from the waist down and had been brutally beaten, and the skin was stripped from his abdomen and legs, and the flesh on one thigh was cut down to the bone. The suspenders also dug so far into his neck, they were literally buried in his skin. And this case was given high priority, and 250 officers were assigned to it, including his father. And the autopsy found raisins in his stomach, and detectives theorized that this abductor had offered him raisins in order to lure him over. Dozens of men were questioned and multiple arrested for Francis's murder, but they were all released. And as the case went cold, his mother begged the public to help us find the gray man. The case remained unsolved until after Albert's trial when he finally confessed to murdering Francis. After his arrest, he confessed to another murder, the murder of four-year-old Billy Gaffney, and he wrote a full detailed confession through his lawyer. He said on February 11, 1927, Billy was playing with a friend in the hallway outside his apartment. Both boys disappeared, and after a frantic search, the friend was found hiding on the roof of the apartment building. And when asked what happened to Billy, he said the boogeyman took him. Albert's confession of what he did to Billy is so disturbing that investigators hoped he was exaggerating. After he kidnapped Billy, Albert took him to a house near a public dumping ground. He then undressed him, bound his hands and feet, and gagged him with a cloth he found in the dump. He then burned his clothes, threw his shoes in the dump, and walked home, leaving Billy there all by himself overnight. The next afternoon, he returned with his homemade torture kit, a cat of nine tails, a belt cut into strips, and some tools and knives. He ended up whipping Billy until blood streamed down his legs. He then cut off his nose and ears and sliced his face from the corners of his mouth to his ears. 
a wound referred to as a Glasgow smile, which is pretty hard to survive. He then gouged out his eyes, and at that point, Billy was dead. He then stabbed him in the stomach and drank the blood. He dismembered the body and put the parts into four potato sacks, and he weighed the sacks down with stones and dumped them in a shallow river on the side of a road. Then things somehow got worse. He brought several pieces of the body home with him, including the genitals, buttocks, ears, nose, and pieces of the abdomen. Albert then proceeded to make a stew with the parts of the face abdomen with onions, carrots, turnips, and celery, seasoned with a bit of salt and pepper. He then covered the buttocks in strips of bacon and roasted them with onions. He also cooked and ate the penis, calling it sweet as a nut, but through the testicles in the toilet because he said he couldn't chew them. It took him four days to eat all the body parts. And Albert wrote this all out like he was giving a recipe to someone that he was really proud of. On the day that Billy disappeared, several witnesses saw Billy with this old man crying on a trolley car, asking for his mother. One of these witnesses confirmed that it was Albert Fish. Billy's body was never found because he ate it. And some of his other victims got away just in time. In 1928, Albert lured a boy named Cyril Quinn and his friend to his apartment by inviting them to lunch. He had already been molesting Cyril. Cyril and his friend were playing in the bedroom while Albert prepared food. And they started wrestling around and moved the mattress. And that's when they saw what was underneath the mattress. It was a meat cleaver, a butcher knife, a small handsaw, the nail-studded paddles, and the cat of nine tails which was obviously the collection of the torture devices that Albert called his instruments of hell. Albert was planning to torture, murder, and eat them. But before he had the chance, the boys ran out of there as fast as they could. Albert is a possible suspect in many disappearances and murders of young children around this time period. He was investigated in three cases. 12-year-old Yetta Abramowitz was strangled and beaten on the roof of her apartment building in 1927. She later died in the hospital. Twenty detectives were on the case in search for a tall young man who had tried to get several other girls to come with them around that time. In February 1932, 16-year-old Mary Ellen O'Connor was murdered in Queens. Her mutilated body was found near a house where Albert had been working. He was also investigated for the murder of 17-year-old boy named Benjamin Collings that same year. He was also suspected of murdering 5-year-old Emma Richardson in 1926, 4-year-old Emil Colling in 1930 and six-year-old Robin Jane Liu in 1931. But after the full interrogation, it was estimated that he attacked at least 100 children. And when Albert heard this, he literally laughed because he said it was at least 400. So no one knows how many of these victims he really had or how many were molested, raped, tortured, mutilated, murdered, or eaten but it is believed that he killed at least 15 people. The story of Albert Fish was widely covered by the media and people came forward from across the country who recognized him as their childhood attacker or the man who tried to kidnap them. Parents remembered him as a creepy old man that they had to pull their children away from. The media also had multiple nicknames for him, including the Gray Man, the Werewolf of Wisteria, the Brooklyn Vampire, the Moon Maniac, and the boogeyman. 
The night before his trial started, he sharpened a chicken bone in his soup and repeatedly stabbed himself. A guard confiscated the bone and reported it as an attempted suicide. But the more likely scenario was that Albert was probably just hurting himself for fun. His trial began on March 11, 1935 and lasted 10 days. And he pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity, insisting that his voice of God told him to do it all. And he never took the stand. His children actually testified on his own behalf. His sons talked about his disturbing and bizarre behavior to prove that he was insane and not responsible for his actions. They believed he was sick, just like a person who has a heart condition is sick. His daughters had nothing bad to say about him. They stuck by him and believed he was just suffering from what they called his afflictions. And like their brothers, they believed he had a disease he couldn't control. His kids also saw him as a great dad. They said he was a hard worker, he never drank, and he never hit them. And they knew he really loved them. Multiple psychiatrists testified about Albert's fetishes, mostly for the prosecution. And there was no doubt that he was a depraved person and a sexual deviant. But they disagreed on whether or not this meant he was insane. His former stepdaughter, 17-year-old Mary Nicholas, also testified on his behalf. She talked about the games he taught her and her siblings before marrying their mother, Estella Wilcox. His former landlady, Mrs. Carlson, also testified about the feces he left on her floor after she kicked him and his sons out. And throughout the trial, Albert mostly just sat slumped in his chair. And as one journalist put it, he looked like a corpse. He would occasionally shrug when his disturbing behaviors were being discussed. And based on his fetishes, it's likely that he really enjoyed watching as proper ladies like Mrs. Carlson struggled to describe the disgusting things he did. The members of the jury believed he was insane, but they also thought he deserved to die for his crimes. And they ended up finding him guilty of murder in the first degree and was sentenced to death. After the sentence, he told the media, being electrocuted to death would be the supreme thrill of my life. And on January 16, 1936, he had his last meal, which was roast chicken, before he was executed in the electric chair. Witnesses said when he was strapped into the chair, he helped the executioner place the electrodes on his body. And his last words were either, I don't even know why I'm here, or, but it wasn't the right verdict. I'm not really sane, you know? One witness said it took two jolts before he died, and it's rumored that the chair sparked and short-circuited because of the needles inside his body. Another witness said his groin exploded, but these details have been disputed. He was then buried in the prison cemetery, and hours before he died, he wrote a final statement and gave it to his lawyer, who told the media he would never show it to anyone, because he called it the most filthy string of obscenities that he had ever read. And this final statement to this day was never released. And thank God. Because this guy is probably one of the most disturbing individuals to ever live, to be quite honest with you. So that is the story of Albert Fish. I guess we'll never know how many victims he had, but what we do know is that I am so glad that he is no longer around. Yeah, me too. Because... I mean, it's it's hard to even just fathom somebody doing these types of 
heinous acts to children especially, but any human being at that. And the only thing I can really come back to is that I, I think, to be honest with you, I think mental illness, I think he had some severe mental illnesses there. Clearly his family, I mean, it, some genetic things going mm-hmm. on there. So that did, that didn't help. And then on top of that, the traumatic things that happened early on in his life. But honestly, sometimes like, God, are just some people born predisposed to to commit violent acts like this? Are they right. predisposed to be cannibals? Like, Or is this a, a learned behavior? Is this a result of something triggering that, that happened to them? I don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, it's extremely sad what happened to these poor, poor children that were his victims and to the families that had to live with this. And he really is. I mean, the boogeyman really describes him, I think, best. Out of all of his nicknames, he is the boogeyman. I mean, he is yeah. that the scariest thing you could possibly encounter as a child mm-hmm. would be somebody like Albert Fish. And I see where the boogeyman movies get their inspiration from is, you know, because they do incorporate some torture, especially in the second Boogeyman movie. With the needles. The needles and all sorts of that, you know, nasty stuff. So Super disturbing. Very Super disturbing. Scary. It's hard to believe that this even happened. Uh-huh. I mean, it's, you know, one one thing for this kind of shit to happen in a movie, but to happen in real life and to children, it's a whole nother yeah. thing. It's just extremely disturbing and and weirdly, I guess fascinating at the same time i mean i hate saying fascinating in 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 that sense but Mm -hmm. it's there's something about these individuals that is so intriguing to to learn about because it's just like if you don't look into this then nobody will ever tell you about this true and i think the benefit of hearing this is what are human beings capable of they're capable of doing things like this i mean makes definitely makes me want to protect my children even more once i have them oh absolutely Cause there are, I mean, like we've talked about with Richard Huckle, I mean, there are people that are like this mm-hmm. alive and well today. And if you're not aware of that human beings are capable of this kind of thing, then you, you know, you might let your guard down. Absolutely. And what you learn and learning about this stuff is that you can never let your guard down, no. especially with your children. You can never trust strangers. Really? Uh-huh. I mean, it's the moral of the story is don't trust a stranger don't go with no, not at all don't go with anybody who claims to be you know like look what happened to the bud family with grace i mean mm-hmm. he came in there and fooled them basically fooled yeah. them and and they fell for it and their daughter was murdered as a result of it i mean this happens all the time today even people are abducted kidnapped mm-hmm. disappear and end up murdered so i guess lesson to be learned here is protect yourself, protect your children and always be aware of strangers and definitely don't don't trust anybody you don't know. So, yeah, well said. So with that, we'll go ahead and wrap up today's episode there of the Lights Out podcast. I hope you found this episode at least interesting, and if you did, we'd appreciate it if you subscribe to the channel here on YouTube as well on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're following us on Lights Out Casts on Twitter and Instagram. But until next time, Lights out, everybody.